Hello, everyone. Welcome to one more episode of uh, our podcast, Real AI Now. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Tobias Zwingmann. He is a book author, an AI book author. He's an, an AI advisor. He also uh, is also a managing partner at a company called Rapid AI, where and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Tobias. You help organizations uh, adopt AI in uh, in different ways. So welcome, uh, Tobias, and thank you for joining us today. I would jump jump right into it and ask you a question. Uh, in your book called AI Powered Business Intelligence, um, you actually bring two things together. AI and business intelligence, um, which I find very interesting. What is it? What is it that motivated you to do that, and uh, what is actually in the core uh, of that concept? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, Paul, uh, thank you so much for having me. So it's really great being on this show, and I'm um, looking forward to a fun discussion. And yeah, I think the, the topic that you just brought up is at the very heart of why I actually wrote that book, AI Powered Business Intelligence, last year, which was actually before ChatGPT came out. So everything is like handwritten, zero <laughs> percent like AI content in there. I guarantee <laughs> That's important nowadays. It's important. Yeah, you have to you have to point that out these days. Sure. Uh, no, but back to the topic. Like, why? Like, did I choose to to, to write this book? And also the um, the the barrier that you mentioned between data science or AI teams and and business intelligence is because I see that, and, and myself included, from my own experience, like I've worked as a data scientist for more than five years in a larger like corporate setting and uh i i realized that one of the main hurdles that models are not being put into production is also like organizational resistance things mm -hmm. within an organization that make it really hard to uh to put a model out and uh especially if you have a bi department which it hasn't always been there, but like for quite some long time. And then you have like mm. all these data science and AI people that maybe joined the company or at least this department was just built a couple of, you know, maybe sometimes even months back. And then mm -hmm. you have this group of people saying, hey, like we can now do forecasts much better than you, right? This creates a a fight within the organization, which I think yeah. is, not, is not good. So because in the end, like what do those like two teams want to do they they want to solve problems with data so actually they they share the same goal and the same objective so my yeah. whole point was to try to like bring those teams closer together by uh by breaking those down barriers um, between them so mm -hmm. and this goes in both directions actually so this goes to right. the business intelligence team uh enabling or empowering them to adopt like data science tools and data science tool sets, which luckily become more and more commoditized by the day. Uh, just think of technologies like AutoML, for example. Um, it's very easy kind of nowadays to, to train these models, to deploy them if you are working, for example, in a larger uh, cloud ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So every large cloud provider has these tools out there. Um, so that that's one direction. But the other direction is also like looking at data scientists and, and AI departments and actually bring them closer to what, what what does the business actually want to know? Because that's what mm -hmm. BI people spend a lot of time on, like gathering requirements, what kind of KPIs should we build, what's actually, you know, useful and valuable. And because for BI teams, very often there's, um, yeah, it, it's much harder to like bring these like dashboards or these KPIs to to the final, to, to the uh, 
organization mm -hmm. out there. Like there's a lot of effort um, and discussions going on around there. Like, you know, what KPIs do we need? How should we define this or that KPI? Whereas data science teams often go and say, oh, okay, you know, what's a customer? Just let's query this customer table. Let's just come up with our own definition. But in the end, there are probably like 10 different definitions of what a customer is in the organization. Right. Uh, so, so things like this, right? So, um, and I think it's really important to bring these people closely together and um, yeah, sharing similar tools, but also sharing a similar language, I think is, is key for this. Mm -hmm. and, and that was one of the goals for, for this book. Okay. So um, can we talk a bit about that? How, how do we do that? Uh, I can bring a bit, of my, my own experience at the table. Um, this was like, let's say 10 years ago, I was working for a large company um, in the insurance space and and there was a very well-established BI uh, function together with the data warehouse team, uh, basically making the foundation work. And then there was the BI team doing the, the, the analytics and the dashboards and all that uh, for business. And making those available for business. Um, and then we came, essentially. <laughs> and we were the new kids in the block, basically, full of ideas. Uh, we had a part of the team working on NL NLP at the time, natural language processing, and the other part doing uh, uh, working on predictive models for uh, quantitative data, structured data. And we were kind of uh, the new kids on the block with the new toys, and there was there was this exactly this clash that you described. Um, we didn't work well together. That didn't work very well. So, in your experience, how can you actually bring those things together? Um, because uh, I, I remember seeing that okay, for the BI guys, we were just a new type of analytics. So from their perspective, we just needed, uh, we, we were just a new type of analytics. So we should work with the data that they have, that they provide, and we should just build on top new type of analytics using the tool set and all. From our perspective, we had all these cool new tools where we could be very fast and and they used legacy technology and they were very slow and very, had very uh, slow and established processes. So uh, a data scientist could be very fast in developing uh, a model using some CSV file that he got from somewhere. And then this would be very shiny, very fast. But then when it came to reality, that wasn't real live data from the company. and. So there was a there was a conflict, and that also, in my experience, made it difficult for AI models to go live, to go to go to production. Do you also have this this kind of experience? So I, I'm guessing I asked many questions. First, what is your experience with that, and how how do we bring those teams together? And second, do you, do you share the experience that I that I just described? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Also, a, a tough one because I think there isn't really a, a a short answer you can give to this. Because what's the underlying conflict there? Like two things I mentioned: the first one, which is organizational conflicts. Very often, these two teams are parts of different parts of the organization, different departments or different units. So this, like, 
like inherently makes it difficult to like overcome that because if you want to collaborate, you have to build a cross-functional team that takes an like, organizational effort or maybe a project. So there's mm. a sort of structure that comes around this, uh, which of course you can do if you like if if, if you form a project and just work together. But that's what, that's one thing. Uh, but the second aspect is culture. And for culture, I think, you know, you, you mentioned the like the different tools of different language, but mm-hmm. languages. But I think what comes on top of that is really a different mindset in terms of working. Because for BI teams, at least for the like past like almost decade, they were more used to work in these very uh I wouldn't call it waterfall methods, but very much like requirement oriented, right? There was the business mm-hmm. saying, okay, we want to have this KPI. The BI team goes like, you know, calculates the KPIs or like prepares the data and then you know it just shows that to the front to the end user. Whereas with data science, like at least in the very early stages, the outcome was not really sure. Like a lot of data science teams were hired of saying, hey, we have a bunch of data, like please go do something useful with that. So right. and and in order to do this, you had to, of course, like adopt a completely different mindset. You had to mm-hmm. uh, make experiments. You had to like bring some ideas yeah. up or build some prototypes and see if something sticks, if something does not stick. It was very hard because there was not that hard business requirement, at least for many companies. There right. might be those companies where you say, okay, for us, for us, it's clear like we run a big e-commerce shop. Like we want to improve our recommendations online. You know, that's why we do data science. But like at least in settings where where I worked in, like I would call that um, like mid-sized companies, maybe like a thousand employees plus, but not like these super like mm-hmm. large tech companies. Um, especially in, in in B2B, like data scientists were hired because there was this promise that data science could unlock some kind of value which was kind of hidden or buried inside the organization. Right. Um, and then like this is a culture clash because like when, when you ask the data science team, like, what do you do? They they said, like, oh, we're just figuring out, <laughs> like we're just trying to, right. to build something which is which is valuable. Um, and I think like overcoming this kind of culture clash is really, really different. So, and the question is like, where do you start? And if you ask me, I think it's much easier, like just from an organizational perspective, from an organizational perspective, because you can do things, you can do two things. You can either take the data scientists, try to move them closer to BI, or you can take the BI guys and try to like, you know, bring them a little closer to the data science world. And I found it much easier to kind of like empower the BI people because what the BI people have is they typically have a very solid and thorough understanding of the underlying data. And also they have access to the productionized uh, data systems and data warehouses. What they are missing though, is just the like conceptual, mindset. yeah, the mindset and the conceptual knowledge of like what data science is actually doing and, and the tools to do this. And but some I would, of the skills as well. Yeah, yeah. And some of the skills. But what I would argue, it's it's kind of much easier to like explain what an AutoML tool is doing to a BI guy instead of trying to onboard the data scientists who often they don't actually have an interest into learning like all the legacy stack that the company is actually running on and trying to explain them how to now, okay, how, how do you integrate your model into Power BI, right? Very often they don't want to do that. Like they, they just want to like de- deploy their model as an API or build a shiny app or whatever. But like when you hire these data scientists or like the people in the data science department, they, they, they often didn't have really an interest to learn these things. It was kind of hard to overcome that. So uh, I think like, you know, th- and this is like very, like a very general so, statement here, but so, yeah. So but, when but you say, a, when you say empower the, empower the bi teams what do you mean exactly because yeah yeah don't you need to bring data scientists into the bi teams 
Yeah, I like that's what I described in my book, right? So the first part of my book was just covering like okay. fundamentals of machine learning, of, of, of data science. So going okay. through the data science cycle, what is machine learning actually? What are the typical pitfalls? How does machine learning work? What is supervised machine learning and so on? I think like mm -hmm. you can have a pretty decent crash course in these things and get up to speed pretty quickly right. in a couple of months if you are like dedicated to this topic and if you have a good understanding of the underlying data. Um, so that's one practical thing. And the other thing is that what, uh, like the, the second part of my book is to show some use cases, because in the end, like when you have a dashboard and you want to do data science, like what do you do? Very often it's all about forecasting. So right. you want to kind of like leave the realm of like historical descriptive analytics and you want to do forecasting or you want to do something which is more like diagnostic and undertakes of figuring out why things happened. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that in both aspects, you can actually use machine learning slash AI in order to do this. But even if you apply this, you need to know and need to find a way to figure out if what you do with AI is actually performing better compared to the non-AI way. That's why I right. always explain like you have to first, first of all, you have to have a simple baseline and just compare against that baseline and this baseline can be like as simple as just taking the mean from time series and use the mean of the last seven days to predict the next day or whatever right and once you right. have this kind of baseline and a like high level understanding of how evaluation metrics work then you can start applying like these more advanced techniques and actually see what is your like are you able to beat the baseline and by how much um so, and, and i think like this is like a whole process of course to learn but I think if you have people in the BI team who are really like eager to learn something and who want to like just upskill themselves, it's like nowadays pretty easy for them to do because like technology is there. Technology is pretty like, it's just like very, very, I would say easy to handle. Of course, you need to have a little like te technical, uh, how do you say? Uh, yeah, a, 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 yeah, you have to kind of endorse this, this uh, mm -hmm. technical, technical thing a little bit, but we have overcome the very, very early like days of, of data science where you had to implement every algorithm like by right. hand in like in a program. Like no, no one does that anymore. Like you have these packages, you have scikit-learn, uh, even if you mm -hmm. are in, in R, you have a like a very good right. ecosystem around that. So it's kind of like convenient to use these tools, at least once right. you know what you're doing. Well, in my, my days, um... And I, I I did some studies in machine learning twenty years ago. Um, in my days, we used MATLAB. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the almost the only tool that was. We could also do C or C plus plus if you wanted to do. That was also possible, but uh, it was mostly MATLAB that you did those things. So I agree, it's much easier uh, today to to do machine learning than it was ten or even twenty years ago. Obviously. Um, not only because of the tools, but also because of the available data and the compute power you have. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, that that's very interesting. So upskilling people and uh, people in um, BI is obviously, I agree with you that this is a, a, a really great way to, um, to implement, to bring AI to business intelligence. And, um, but how do you, I mean, one, the other way around, right? You talked about the other problem. You don't, you, you get the data scientists, they don't want to learn the old stuff. But actually, they, I mean, when you're using AI, when you're implementing, let's say, machine learning, even if it's one of those new fancy models that you have now, um, 
Well, you need data to to train the models, to test them, and and you need data governance and all that. So how do you, and, and this is just a little bit of it, a little part of it, there's others, but you'd need at least, you need data and you need governance for that data. Now, how do you bring the data scientists that don't want to do that hard work to actually work together with the data teams that 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 guarantee that this happens? Because if I want to, let's say I am a data scientist and I'm developing a, a model that predicts what is the next product that the customer will be likely to buy, for example, and because I want to recommend it. And so I developed my model in my Jupyter notebook. It works great, right? I took some extract of the, of the data for the last six months and I trained that, it works great. I presented to the to management, they say, oh, great. Uh, now let's bring this live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's where it gets complicated. And, and many projects actually die at that point because they cannot, they don't survive from going from yeah. Jupyter Notebook in, uh, all the way to production. So do you have any experience that, or any guidance that you could give uh, our audience in how to make that process easier? Yeah, I think the, like just from my observation, I think yeah. the hard truth behind this is that a lot of these data science roles where you were supposed to do something in, in, in the Jupyter Notebook and just like say, okay, like that's my job. And they have disappeared. Like there's actually just two options. The first option is you either like become hands-on and say, okay, now I'm learning to how to implement that myself. You kind of like move further along the um, like soft engineering or data engineering like stack of the um, right. of the job role spectrum. That's option one. And the other option, which is option two, is if you don't want to do this, is to head more into the research space. But I think. Okay. This intersection where you say, like, I'm this kind of like, you know, um, smart guy in the organizational building these sophisticated models, and then mm -hmm. I will just throw a pickle file over the fence, and then someone else is doing something with that. It doesn't work. You know, it's in, and like, I've seen a lot of data science teams like disappear literally in, inside the organization, not, not, not having people kind of fired and leaving the organization, but just like these data science and like innovation teams were kind of like, yeah, dissolved in this organization and being absorbed by other parts. And this could be the data department. Like this could be just the analytics department. A lot of, a lot of data scientists have ended up being like working in a uh, data analytics department or data analyst role, uh, which is not bad, by the way, right? Because like we, we figured yeah. out that um, the the actual like the actual work which needed to be done was in the data was with what was in the space of data engineering and data preparation, data quality, data governance, and so on. Right when when your goal was to uh, to train your own custom AI models. And I think this is, and, and this was a very, very but they become They become engineers. They became the, engineers. Or at yeah. least partially they became engineers. Uh, yeah. Either software engineers, you mentioned like oper oper uh, operationalizing uh, the models or data engineers or both. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, yes. Um, at least until like last year, until ChatGPT came to the place, uh, okay. I think this mm -hmm. was the only way out for uh, for data scientists to like you know just to survive on this job market to be more technical and, and learn data engineering stuff. 
because again, like the goal back then was to build your own machine learning and AI models. If, if you were a data scientist and you could not build your own AI model for whatever reason, like you had a difficult time. So you had to figure out what to do. Um, and yeah, but I think like the, the focus has now shifted a little bit again, uh, also, which is not very much in favor for data science. So I think data science right. is really in, in a bit of a trouble right now. But um, yeah, but, but I think we, we, we have a completely different field right now. Like, uh, yeah, one, one year after uh, that last year. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and maybe we should uh, just move right away to it. So um, I, I observe the same thing. So I share your opinion that, um, and that's actually the advice that I gave data scientists was always that to, okay, so you need to learn, you need to, data scientists becomes more valuable the, the more they are able to deliver end-to-end. And end to end might mean um, like uh, application uh, in the direction of application. So they become a developer kind of uh, slash AI engineer kind of person, or they move in the direction of data. They become data engineers, more data engineers. And, and actually they will spend more time doing data work than actual data science, data, data plumbing, like I, I like to call it because that's where a lot of the work is um, to actually set up the right data pipelines and the right data governance so that you have the clean, good data that you need to to build a model. Uh, and so I, I agree with that. Now, I also observed that shift that you just mentioned. And this shift started probably before uh, the launch of ChatGPT one year ago, but it became kind of obvious when ChatGPT was launched. So what is the shift that we are talking about here? What is that large language models like ChatGPT bring to the table? Let's start from that. That was not there before. Yeah. So I think the main like shift in paradigm is that before ChatGPTs, when organizations wanted to do something with AI, they were very much in the space of building AI systems themselves. Yeah. Now, I think it's more about finding good use cases and using AI systems, which are out there. Because it's clear that the average organization just can't build a large language model from scratch. It's just like too expensive to do this, yeah. even if you had the people for this. Uh, so what do you do? You, you try to find out what are good use cases for this? Well, what are use cases where you can um, use the APIs from OpenAI or from any other vendor there, which was just there on the market and, and try to find good use cases for this. And it turns out that most use cases nowadays are like what I call augmented use cases. This is like you have the human in the loop. And this suddenly like changes the game a little bit because data science back then was very much about like integration. You didn't want to have a human in the loop. Like it was all about integration automation. If you want to have a recommendation system on your website or a churn prediction model, you don't want to have a sales guy sitting somewhere in the middle of the process and like trying to revise some, um, you know, some outputs. Like it's just kind of like, you know, badger online prediction, right? You like, this is your input, this is your output, and there you go, and you just scale that up. Uh, but right now we see a situation where we have these um, very capable AI models but which are very hard to integrate in 100% automated workflows because of all the like like difficulties mm -hmm. that these models have. But they work really, really well in um, these kind of conversational interfaces or in interfaces where you have a human in the loop. And I think this now requires a different skill set. What you need to know now is I think you need to 
think more in terms of product development and also user interfaces and how do you actually integrate that into business processes? Not mm -hmm. so much in like, you know, this is the, like, this is our product yeah. that there will be the recommendation, but how does actually the business process look like? And how can I use AI to, um, yeah, to, to enhance this business process? Like I give you an example, like if you, like classical examples in businesses right now using AI is, is, is marketing and sales. Like if you have a marketing team or a content team that is developing content, like there's a ton of use cases where you can just like, you know, augment these use cases with AI, either by like building a tool internally or just by, you know, buying something which, which is out there. And I think this happens not only like in one department, but across all different departments in the organization. So the question is now, who's actually controlling this? Are you just leaving the HR department on themselves, the marketing department on themselves, the sales department on themselves, figuring that out? Or try, do you try to kind of like control that in a bit? And I think this is, mm -hmm. this is, this is the uh, space where lots of companies are right now. And this is also like just my personal kind of network where I see a lot of people who mm -hmm. have being kind of former data scientists now move into the direction of being a kind of like, oh, this guy knows something about AI and like helping organizations to like, just to overcome this uh, transformation or to manage this transformation, uh, mm -hmm. building things like internal use case logs, prioritizing things, helping to organization to make the uh, make versus buy decision, uh, helping right. to do some really integrated, like uh, like low level integrations or like higher level integrations, mm -hmm. depending on what kind of system environment you have. But like being kind of like the more on a coordinating role and also more on a role which is uh, very much exposed to um, right. the user side. So, and that means back then, if you were a data scientist, like one year ago, if you were a data scientist who absolutely like, hated communicating with people and sitting in Teams meetings, like, you're probably better off going to the data engineering route. Of course, you still have to talk to people, but not that much. And once you figured out, I actually I actually like these interactions with other people, you know, mm -hmm. like speaking with business stakeholders, you might be more transitioning into the, I don't even know what the role is called. Like, Consultant. Yeah, consultant or data product managers, you know, that's or what, what, what some people call that inside organizations or like, you know, internal AI consultants or right. whatever. I, I don't know. I think there isn't really a good job uh, terminology for that. But mm -hmm. it's clear that you are this kind of person inside an organization who helps to align these effort, who builds the roadmap and who also helps to get the use cases like off the ground because... Mm -hmm. um, like and like the thing is like with all these new AI technologies, it's, it's really mm -hmm. easy to build the first prototype or to get excited about some capability, but it's really hard to scale that up and and put that into production, especially because everything is still so new. Um, and if if you can be that like person or part of a right. team inside an organization, I think you can add tremendous value, and also you will have like so much. Like you have you have a, such an like competitive advantage compared to every like external you know consultant who could ever come into this company because ideally you know the pitfalls and the data and everything in your company that right. is typically like they're very hard to overcome uh so this this will like put you in a, in a great spot but again like this means you will not spend most of your time or most of your day like building models and jupyter notebooks no yeah. <laughs> you're probably mostly sitting in like team meetings and project meetings and other stuff and trying to uh okay. bring this alignment in an organization and try to help them make the first steps um okay. because it's just like there are just so many use cases. You just can't do a deep dive in all these use cases. Right. Um, and yeah, I think so, this is a very different paradigm right now. Okay, so, I mean, and this is with like uh, large language models and generative AI. Um, I mean, is there still 
I need at least we see now at least I still see in our business that we there there is still a lot of work to be done where this technology actually doesn't apply or at least doesn't apply yet. Um, for example, anything to do with time series data, yeah, absolutely, uh, doesn't apply yet. Um, so uh, I do see in uh, in the natural language processing space where uh, basically it, it kind of everything forget everything you did before in natural language processing like uh, uh, use cases in um, use cases in uh, chatbots like uh, assistance uh, and uh, automation or process automation based on natural language processing you kind of have to forget everything how how we did it in the past and and look at this new technology because it's going to change completely what you do and it's the shift that I see is that it becomes more what you said. Um, it's not data science anymore, basically what you're doing. It's engineering. Now, mm. the technology is new. It's a little bit unpredictable sometimes. So you you can't really trust it completely. And that's why you need a, a human in the loop. At least now, in most cases, uh, you need a human in the loop. Um but you need to rethink things, uh, uh, and and this is this is where the role, of, for example, of the natural language processing specialist is going to change completely. And people yeah. are actually focusing more, okay, prompt engineering in these new kind of skills. Um, I have a question about the about um, BI and data and large language models. Um, I had some conversations in the last couple of months where uh, people ask me, can you use large language models in, for example, uh, in data engineering? Can can they help in data engineering? Can you talk a bit about that? Um, so one or two things that come to mind. One is, uh, in business intelligence, uh, the question the question that comes over and over is, can you turn natural language questions into database queries, for example? Mm -hmm. That's one. Yeah, yeah. And make this kind of work more, mm -hmm. democratize it a bit. That's one. Second uh, thing, topic that comes to the table is data quality. Can you use a large language model to assess data quality? And the third that came that comes to mind is. Can you use large language models to help in data migration? So, um, uh, or or data consolidation. So there there is, uh, let's say you have to pull data from a transactional database into some some other repository like a data warehouse or a data lake. Can you use the large language models to help do that work? Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts or already some conversations, experience with that? Yeah, so um, let's start with question one, <laughs> which is integration of large language models in um, in, in BI and dashboards. And yeah. uh, I think this has this has gone quite a long way. So back in my yeah. book, when I wrote that like one year ago, there was like I had some use cases where I introduced or where I showcased how you can use like the built-in Q&A functionality within Power BI to just like, you know, type some queries and get an answer mm -hmm. from your data, which is, I think, nice. Um, but honestly, I, I do believe that the moment 
we have a very capable chatbot that will just answer any questions you have on your business in mm -hmm. terms of analytics. All dashboards will disappear. Like okay. this is this is just like dashboards are like no one like I haven't I haven't met any single business person who really enjoys looking at dashboards. Honestly, <laughs> most people they don't care about dashboards. What they care is about do I need to do something? Is there anything right. I need to do? Like every number, every KPI out, out there is just a proxy for figuring out if we just can continue what we're doing here or do we need to go left or right? And right. Once we are able to just ask a chatbot a like you know a, a question like you know is is there any like is is there anything off with my sales last month and gives you a, a a very good answer to that which is backed up by facts no one will look at dashboards anymore uh, the only thing is it doesn't work yet <laughs> but if right. I just look at the at the progress we've made from last year to today um, I think well you know let's wait what happens in one year maybe we'll we'll just be at this point in time where everything is still more or less the same like now uh, but maybe there are other um, yeah there there are other um, um, like, you know, technology is coming out that are helping with that. And I think uh, one key technology could be to make structured data more accessible to large language models. Because how, how do you try, currently try to do this like a Q&A interface for, for dashboards? We typically use a large language model to take a query, translate this back into a SQL code, and then run the SQL code on the database and fetch the answers. And I think this doesn't really work on very complex and, and, and large queries. I think it's good if you have, um, let's say, a, a, a view of, yeah, if you have a, if you have, if you, if you have one a table, view, one view. Yeah, yeah, if you have one table of one view and you just want to interact with that table. Uh, would th and, and this could be a working model because in the end, what does it mean? It would mean that data engineering's job is not uh, now not to build like all these star schemas, which all these like we will all the cubes in the in, in the back end, which have very fancy or uh, cryptic uh, column names, uh, but just maybe produce a ton of flat tables which have really explicit namings uh, that allows a large language model to query these tables very effectively. But like we don't really know if that works. That would be option one. Option two would be that at some point we find mm -hmm. a um, kind of like interface or middleware that allows large language models to access these data sources um, in structured, in, in, in relational databases easier compared to um, like what we currently have. So to mm -hmm. give an example, we have vector databases for, for text. Maybe we'll yeah. figure out that there's, you know, something which works pretty good for like structured data, which we just don't know yet. Right. I don't know, right? Well, um, vector, vector databases uh, use... Um... It works embeddings, great for text. Yeah, for vector right. embeddings works great for text and semantics doesn't really work for numbers or structured But that doesn't data. work for numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but let's wait and see what happens. Maybe someone comes up with a good idea and figures out, hey, like, you know, why, why don't we use just this one here? And then suddenly it works well with, uh, mm -hmm. actual, uh, with large mm -hmm. language models. So there could be something happening on that front. Um, but I think the best option we have right now is to... Um, because I I don't think like LLMs are not they are not going away like they they're here to stay and I also believe yeah. that every business person will um, rather use a very good chatbot compared to a dashboard when it comes mm -hmm. to like getting quick answers. So what do we do? Um, and I think one way to anticipate this trend is to um, and this comes back to data quality. Mm -hmm. Trying to be really explicit about what your data has. Or what your data is in the um, in in the storage later in the data warehouses, and I think we have been talking for decades about metadata and how it like why we should use metadata in our warehouses and annotate right. all these things, but it turned out like no one really did that because it's just too much effort. And I think right. this could be actually also now a good opportunity to bring in LLMs to make all these annotations. Do that. 
yes. to actually do this. Documentation. Right? Documentation. That's, documentation. That's, all, that's a use case. Generate yeah. documentation. Yeah, right? generate documentations, metadata uh, generation, um, right. also enforcement of certain metadata catalogs and in, in data tables, all these things which would take like ages and hours of tedious manual work to do for a human. I think this can now be done with LLMs and the human in co collaboration mm -hmm. to just document that out. Because like if, if you have two data warehouses where one data warehouse has just cryptic column names and no documentation and no metadata, and you have warehouse two where you have like telling column names and you have metadata describing what every column is and how every, um like, you know, how, how the data schema works and also the schema is nicely documented. Mm -hmm. Option two will be much easier for an LLM to make sense of compared to option one. So it's maybe not even like it's maybe right. not close to perfect, but it's much easier. And I think this one is going into the right direction. And even if you're not able to do QA on top of that thing, you still have a well documented mm -hmm. data warehouse. So it's good. Right. Right. Um, and so, I think this is where like LLMs can actually help in like in increase data quality and can help right. increase. And that was the point number two. Yeah. Yeah, that was point number two. Like yeah. coming back to this point and, and yeah. I think so, this is a so try, I'm trying to summarize what you said so let's say if you what you basically saying is that if people have a good chat GPT that is able to understand the company's data um, then you don't need a dashboard right because you ask a question and the chatbot will tell you uh, if everything if everything is fine or if there's anything wrong um, that you understand that you have to take action so that's one point. Um, I, and I tend to agree with that, obviously. Now, if you want to democratize um, this kind of uh, feature, because in the end, you are asking a chatbot to query a database, whatever kind of database that is, but database that actually contains quantitative data, not just text, um, then that's not an easy thing to do yet. Uh, because the technology is not there, at least not yet. And uh, so there might be things that need to be done on the, let's say, on the data side or on the database side to make that data more digestible by a large language model. Like uh, you mentioned, instead of cubes and complex things, you have like more flat, self-documented tables or views mm -hmm. um, that, would uh, an LLM would make uh, easier to understand. You can also use LLMs to actually bring the documentation of those data uh, repositories to a level where they are more digestible. So an LLM can help improve the documentation side or the metadata side of a data repository so that another LLM can understand it better. Um, you touch at some point like uh, generating SQL, that's difficult, especially for complex things. Uh, so might not be the right way, or at least not yet. Um, something comes to mind. I, I listened to a podcast episode, one of my favorite podcasts from Lex Friedman, um, with where the guest was uh, Stephen Wolfram. And you know Wolfram Alpha, mm -hmm. right? Uh, th this is pretty impressive stuff. Now... Well, what they did in terms of turning a natural language query into some structured uh, query was pretty impressive until LLMs came. <laughs> so now they were talking about uh, they have some kind of 
intermediate language, Wolfram language, some something in between that that actually translate a natural language query into this Wolfram intermediate language that then queries their kind of data uh, data representation. Do you think also that this could be kind of the way to go? That um, we'll need some intermediate representation of structured data at some point that allows an LLM actually to generate a query. So it's probably not going to be SQL. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something more uh, more digestible uh, to than yeah. to an LLM than SQL. Uh, do you think this is the direction that things are moving? Because the, the Wolfram, Wolfram Alpha, they're already trying something like mm -hmm. this. But of course, you need to be able to do this in an enterprise environment or for companies. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a, a, a direction? Creating yeah, I think a like... new language that allows you an LLM to talk to a database. I, I don't think about it in terms of languages. I yeah. think about it more in terms of kind of microservices or like little services mm -hmm. in between. Um, think about the whole concept of data mesh in organizations where you say you have data producers, data uh, data consumers, and mm -hmm. like these kind of data product owners for different like entities of your of your business. And if you if you have this, I think this is a very good starting point uh, or very good basis to to leverage that with LLMs. Because what do you do if you if you have a data mesh organization and let's say you have a um, you have a um, let's say product owner for a recommendation service on your on on your mm -hmm. website where this is documented. It's an API. It takes some kind of like IDs, maybe user ID or product IDs, and the output is another ID. And it's all documented, like what it does, what the input is and output is. That is very easy to query for a large language model. And this is what OpenAI is doing with their uh, function calling API, where mm -hmm. you can just say, like, you know, this def definition of the of the API of the function, you can just go ahead and query that. And this works really well if the function is kind of like really straightforward and has a narrow focus. And mm -hmm. um, I think if you do this for analytical purposes, analytical cases where, for, for example, say, okay, I want to have a uh, a revenue, like give, please give me a revenue and I want to have uh, this context, like a marketing context or a sales context or finance context, like all these different contexts can like result in a different revenue uh, figure. But there's like this one entity, this one microservice or whatever you call it that controls the calculation of this like revenue metric. Once you have that in place, there's so it's like, just basically it, calling a function. It's basically just calling a function. But what you need to do is like before you can do this, you need to have this kind of. I don't even know if you have if if you if you need the terminology data mesh architecture for this, but I think right. you need to break up your kind of like data warehouse or data lake into different kind of like multi uh like smaller parts where okay. every part handles a certain business domain or a certain product depending mm -hmm. on what you how you define this, and um and again like. If it works with LLMs, like great, you can just call them with like natural languages. But if it mm -hmm. doesn't work with LLMs, it's also great, right? Because you have everything cleaned up. It's very easy to connect these pieces together if you build dashboards, if you build like other reporting metrics. I think it just um, enhances the overall analytical maturity of your organization if you're able to do this. Um, and as, right. I, so, so I think like no matter if LLMs are very good for this or not, I think it's definitely the right direction to go into. Uh, because this so is to like- To go what, into like an architecture. like a, An architecture like this because- An it, architecture that is, that allows- for such applications, right? And yeah. LLM is just an application. In it's just an that. application, yeah, which is interacting with that. And and I think this aligns very well with 
or what chat companies, is an application. Uh, yeah, or, or chat is an application. I think this aligns really well to what uh, I, I see companies doing anyway, like companies who have transitioned, uh, they have transitioned from uh, mm-hmm. data warehouses to data lakes with everything that come around that and then building like these kind of like, you can call it data marts or data mesh organizations when you have owners and uh, consumers like in, in, in place for, for these different mm-hmm. things, these different microservices or, or functions. Right. Um, and this is kind of the, like automatically the, the next level in order mm-hmm. to uh, get trusted and uh, data which is like yeah, documented and okay. where you have a contract behind of that where you say so, okay whenever i call that from here you know you, you get the same value and this is the ideal basis for so, LLMs in the end okay so let, let's deal with llms because this is the <laughs> yeah. hot topic and uh, but i'd like to still first to keep the connection llms structured data bi right classic mm-hmm. bi and one of the challenges that i hear and I keep hearing, and, and and I know, understand why it it's it, the question is always coming up is the fact that LLMs hallucinate and make things up, especially numbers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's so, true. Yeah, that's true. Um, now, how can you? Uh, <laughs> what can you do to mitigate that? Right. Yeah. Let's say. Let's just give that. Let me just give you a quick example. So, uh, let's say I want to ask a question to my CRM, mm-hmm. and I have a chatbot that I could use to ask a question to my CRM and say, "What were my sales last month?" Right. And then, can you give me a breakdown of the sales by product and by region? Okay. Now, this is a very simple query to do, or at least. Uh, does it's not that complex it doesn't look that complex now if you have a chatbot that that actually um is going to make that query and then ask an llm because the llm doesn't have the information so that's mm-hmm. that's the assumption the llm doesn't have the information the llm is used to generate an answer yeah um how do I make sure that the numbers that the LLM then generates uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> are the actual real numbers and not some yeah. made-up uh, numbers? I, I, I think the key is to reducing the LLM to what it's really good at, and this is handling conversations, human-like conversations, but you right. should not let it make the actual calculations. So how do you do this? You need to prepare the actual calculations as much as possible. And again, this can be, uh, for example, this kind of engine or API where the LLM knows, like, for example, let's take this example. A user asks, like, can I get the revenue breakdown for product X by region USA right. or whatever? So the LLM in this case should be able to recognize that there is this uh, this API or this function it can call where it needs to, like, pull in the, uh, the, the, the product, uh, maybe... It will even figure out that there's another service which translates a product name to a product ID, retrieve the product ID, put that into the different function, and actually pull the the values from there and just show the values to the users. And then, okay. how do you make sure it actually works? You need to like there needs to be this kind of like source of of truth. So there needs to be this um like yeah uh, documentation of the steps that the LLM did, uh, similar to what OpenAI is doing today with Code Interpreter. We can take a look at the code it actually generated. Uh, so that's uh, that that's one way, but I think honestly, this is very much into the future. Like you know, we are not there yet. By I don't know how long. I don't know if we ever reach that point, but it, it will. Right. Like, it will still like take a lot of time to, to get there. I think eventually. Um, 
One other way, which I have seen, but also like this is just prototyping and POCs, um, is using the RAG architecture for scenarios like this. So RAG mm -hmm. architecture, retrieval augmented generation, means you just use the LLM as a search engine to get the information. So now what you can do is um, you can literally just render all your BI reports that you have as PDF files or whatever. It can be like a huge document of like 200 pages, 500 pages, it doesn't actually matter. And mm -hmm. you just take the PDF, uh, just take the LLM, to search for that information in the pre-rendered, like whatever mm -hmm. document that is, could be an HTML document, could be a PDF document, just grab the information from there, which is there. Like imagine like having a BI report, which breaks down every product by every sales region, by every, so yeah. A report that would nobody would read. Nobody or, would read the report. It would be like it's, super, it's super meant, long. It's meant for the- yeah. uh, it's, it's meant for the LLM. And yeah, the LLM yeah. could go to this report, fetch the data, show it to user, and provide a source, which is then pointing to this like page in a report where the report yeah. actually is generated from a trusted process. So right. it's literally like generating a dashboard as complex right. and as long as so, no one would ever read that, but okay. it would be accessible for an LLM to get the information from there. And actually, this is something which I have done in like POC or prototype stage, which like works well for at least for a certain domain. Let's say you just look at the uh, marketing KPIs, or just look at the sales KPIs, because you can kind of control that process. It doesn't really scale to the entire organization, um, but again, like we're still early, and um, mm. yeah, but this is something so, which gives you the security about the data correctness. So the the two options, and uh, let's go through uh, through them a bit. So the the second one you're talking about generating reports in text that. Uh, for the LLM, so uh, that uh, and essentially, when you ask a question, you ask you ask uh, ask a question to the chatbot. The chatbot goes and searches on a vector database where this report would be stored as 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 vectors, and and then you take the result of that search. You and you ask the LLM to generate an answer. The LLM will generate an answer based on that and refer to the place where this was found. Mm -hmm. um, so even if the LLM hallucinates and gives you some wrong facts that could also happen, you can still go and check that the answer that the LLM gave yeah, you it will is, always give matches you a source. The, it will always yeah. give you a source. And you could click, could click the source and see where the information right. is coming from. So in that case, you would mitigate the hallucination because the LLM might still tell you some, might still give you a wrong number. Um, yeah, theoretically, though... but I haven't really seen that for a lot of rag use cases that we have hallucinations okay. based on, um, like I haven't seen a really a case where the information was in document and it was correctly retrieved and then hallucinated or changed by the LLM. Okay. Like we see hallucinations in places where there is no information in the document and then the LLM kind of like makes something up. I think this right. is something which you would need to or, mitigate by just telling it, you know, if you don't know, say, I don't know. Something okay. Like that. <laughs> and that's prompt engineering, right? And that, that's kind of prompt engineering. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, okay. I wouldn't call it, I would call it prompt hacking. <laughs> not really engineering. Yeah, but, yeah. It's not an engineering topic. But, it's yeah, more but, crafting. Yeah, yeah. It's more crafting. Yeah. Modern alchemy. Yeah. And, <laughs> And the first, the first thing you um, you talked about was um, also very interesting, but obviously more difficult. That was about um, actually generating, well, generating code that then calls yeah. other systems, and obviously generating code is 
something that uh, still requires a lot of uh, work in the evolution of the technology. And um, so I, I, I share the same the same opinion. But I do see limitations in both. So um, I, I, I think that there is a lot of work to be done in this space and um, of, let's say, marrying LLMs with BI or with, let's say, structured quantitative data. And this is going to be very interesting. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen because this this has a lot of potential, but there is clearly a lot of work to be done. What the, I mean, code, if I may ask you a question about code, I'm sorry, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add a bit because, I mean, we, we're talking about LLMs being able to query data and this and this. Like, just to be sure, this is all super early. Like, it takes a ton yes. of work to do this. It's not, it's nothing which you just plug and play and it works. And I think before you go that way, I think there's one question that you and your organization have to ask yourself before you actually invest all the time uh, in, into these efforts. And, and yeah. the question is, are you able, willing to look at data and willing to change? Because like we have seen so many organizations that want to be data-driven and, and whatnot, but actually no one in like top management cares about actual data or just very little. Like they, they care some like some things that the CFO is telling them, but not so much about like everything else, which is very coming down from a, a like very operational level. Um, and if we don't right. have this mindset, it, it's just like it, it's just a wasted effort to, to, to go for this way. Right. right. I, I, I do believe that in the end, like every company needs to kind of like embrace this route because it should it just be more higher competition out there. But again, like if your organization is not ready for this, like there's no point in trying to make it happen with LLMs. Uh, right. So yeah, that's the only thing I wanted to uh, add mm -hmm. on top of that. But I do think, and I think this is where LLMs have a really good place. Um, if if you are already an organization, which like there are these different kind of like data maturity stages, right? There are different definitions mm -hmm. out there, but in the end, you know, it's all coming from like very being a, a very data beginner up to like, you know, being a data fluent organization. And a lot of organizations right now are at this point where they have invested into a uh, something like an analytics center of excellence or, you know, mm -hmm. some data analyst where they have like, you know, maybe 10% of their people or 15% of their people in their organization kind of like, you know, data ready and like data like professionals mm -hmm. aware, uh, but they, they struggle to really get adoption for the last like 80% of all the workforce out there. And you can't just right. like turn all the 80, other 80%, you can't, you, you can't turn them into data analysts. It doesn't just, it just doesn't work. Of course you can send them to a data literacy bootcamp for one week, but you know, in the end it just doesn't make any impact. So how do you get the other 80%, which is the majority of your business users to adopt analytics and uh, be like insight or data driven? How do you do this? And I think this is where LLMs can, play a major role because they will allow you to uh, build on top of the like already pretty good data fundament which you have and make that more accessible mm -hmm. to your organization. Um, right. Because again, like 80% of these people, you know, a lot of them don't even want to look at dashboards and, and like Excel pivot tables and so on. It will be super hard to like sell them on this idea. Um, mm -hmm. And using LLMs, I think, can be a, a convenient way to access this data. Because in the end, these people, they don't want data. They just want to get an answer to a question which they are having right now, which is could be something as profound as, you know, what's actually my conversion rate on my last email campaign? Something like this, right? Maybe they already have that information, then it's fine. Maybe not. Maybe they, but maybe they have an information or maybe they have a question which is more related to, you know, what should be actually? Like, is that actually good? Or, you know, what can I improve? And, and I think mm -hmm. these are all 
very good entry points where we can leverage the power of LLMs to to help them um, augment their own workflows. Um, okay. So yeah, so you know, so, but, but I think you need to have a certain fundamental or certain like baseline level what, of data. What, what maturity? What maturity level does an organization need? Then. Yeah, again, like there are different definitions on uh, like, mm -hmm. like uh, I, I think you need to have at least uh, an organization where you have a centralized data department um, because that's like that, that's what all company, the stage that every company goes through. Like, first of all, like you don't have anyone doing something with data, but like you can't go from no one is doing some anything with data to everyone is just becoming data driven. Like it just doesn't work. You have to have a step in between where mm -hmm. you are centralizing the efforts, where you have an analytic center of competence or anything else, where you have things like data governments and you have a certain like data right. quality control. Like you know this is centralized. But again, once you have this, I think you are in a good spot to go to the next stage and ask yourself, okay, how do I actually now that I have my you know like mm -hmm. I don't know like twenty data analysts here in my organization uh, doing amazing things but how do i um, bring that to the rest of the organization and i think this would be a good timing to to think about these things like you know okay. ai and llms i don't think you need that before if you don't have any ai uh sorry a data analytics uh kind of entity in your organization mm -hmm. you can't go for the ai route i think it doesn't work so i think okay. you need to have that before so is is this the kind of work you do with uh, with your company with rapid ai is this the kind of advice that you do you give to 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 customers? Yeah, at, at you, least it, you talked earlier about well helping, uh, well figuring the 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 role of data scientist internal um, was a bit more uh, understanding what use cases you can apply. Is is that also what you try to help companies with to understand for them to understand a bit better how these technologies can be applied? Yeah, so I, I would describe it at least nowadays more in a way like I help companies who stumble into AI do AI in a structured and like straightforward way. Because the way most companies nowadays hear about AI is that some executive or leader, you know, heard about overheard something about ChatGPT or any use case right. out there or went to a conference or, you know, went through the last like vendor event and is now super excited about that AI thing. Um, and what I do then normally is when they approach me and say, hey, we want to do this and this. Like, for example, we want to build our internal uh, chat GPT. We want to build our internal LLM. Uh, I tell them, say, okay, like, like, do you have 100 million to spend on this? Like, mostly they don't have, right? So right. what do we do? Um, so my job nowadays is often, first of all, to zoom out a little bit and say, okay, well, what challenges are we actually facing? And this zooming out, this is something that I do in this um, AI design sprint, which I offer as a like, first intro to, to these companies. Mm -hmm. uh, this could be an organizational level where we zoom out to the organizational level and say, okay, mm -hmm. where, where do we actually have big pain points in different departments or business units? Or if uh, the contact is more coming from a business department, like a sales or marketing department, uh, we would look at the like the high level process in that department and sub processes that are in in, mm -hmm. in in this field of responsibility and and figure out where can we identify pain points and and bottlenecks for the business. Pain points are really things that you know are hurting. They are aware of those problems and they want to uh, remove these problems. Like for example, it could be that they are. Uh, customer service takes forever, right? So that could be a different, uh, could be a right. pain point. 
Uh, but it could also be a bottleneck. A bottleneck is something which I describe as something which they are not aware of, that this could be a problem. Uh, so this could be, for example, let's say you have an e-commerce shop and it have, happens still very often in B2B settings where there are no recommendations in place. So I would say, let's try recommendations. Um, and of course, I would not suggest directly jump into the AI solution and just right. do AI recommendations. But I would say, hey, you don't do recommendations, but typically recommendations can help you to improve your revenue by X percent. So let's assume you have X percent revenue from your shop would that be helpful yes or no right. in many cases it is and then we make a plan on how to get there like having the first right. baseline implemented and then like going from there to having a you know whatever kind of like more sophisticated system that will help them achieve this uh so yeah right. like I, I kind of like you know first of all try to zoom out and say okay what are we what, what are we actually doing here um because it's just so easy these days to get lost in uh different use cases that are very easy or look very easy to like prototype but in mm -hmm. the end are very hard to scale up and also very hard to actually bring value to the organization in the end because okay. the organization is not ready for this. I, I agree. I mean, I have the same same experience. And we do, uh, at Two Impulse, we do offer a similar kind of engagement model where we help them first, uh, depending on their level of maturity, how, how mature their ideas are. We Sometimes we help them first understand what is the problem and then... Mm -hmm talk about solutions um so uh tobias thank you for joining us uh today uh the conversation could go on for hours i can see that uh, very interesting uh very uh, good insights is there anything you'd like to add any piece of advice that you'd like to um to to add uh before before we uh we end our episode today uh, I don't know. You know, I always say when it comes to AI, uh, think big, but take small steps. So I think it's really important to to really internalize that you need to be able to ship in increments and you need to be able to have this iterative mindset because that's coming very back to the beginning of the discussions that we have. It's very hard to plan AI nowadays just from the end backwards. We can't say that okay, next year by December, we want to have this internal LLM and, you know, what do we do to get there? It's like, you can have that as a North Star and as a high-level mm -hmm. vision, but you need to be able to take very small steps which go into the right direction, but then also be able to, like, you know, be flexible along the way, uh, just with everything that is happening in, in AI right now. So even now, I think it's very hard. It's a very hard time to make huge investments into AI because you just don't know what will be around the corner. You know, maybe next year this time, it will be mm -hmm. the same as this time. But maybe there's like the next big thing, right, in AI happening. I don't really believe that, actually. I think it will be like a little better than we currently have, but I don't expect like a, another ChatGPT breakthrough next another year. Another revolution. <laughs> yeah, but, but 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 who knows? I think it's just in terms of like financial planning and IT spending, I think it's very hard to, for example, commit these days to build that super duper expensive AI solution and just hope that, you know, uh, we don't have AGI next year. <laughs> so um, th <laughs> that's why I think- computing. Yeah, or quantum computing next year. So, so that's, why i think like going into these uh like embracing that mindset of thinking mm -hmm. big but also being able to take small steps um also being able to ship things like you know iteration or sprint after sprint whatever a sprint might be for your organization quickly i think quickly yeah 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 just just like you know be, be yeah. able to do this i think this is the key. same uh, it's the same kind of advice we are giving um our customers and partners is don't invest too much uh, at once. Uh, baby steps, cheap quickly. Try something quickly, and because that will reduce the risk. You will learn. You will learn what yeah. works for. It. Doesn't don't expect too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
think human in the loop, especially in the LLM cases, because there's always a degree of uncertainty there. Um, and yeah, uh, we have a couple of conversations about code, generating code, generating documentation for code, uh, looking at code quality. Well, you can't just blindly trust code generated by an LLM that then goes into your software. You need to have a human checking it. And this is um, and this is something that we need to kind of repeat over and over. <laughs> so I, I can relate. I completely agree with what you said. Um don't get don't get locked too quickly to one specific vendor. That's mm -hmm. another because we don't know what's going to happen with the majority of vendors out there today, not even with the big ones. Yeah. Uh, we watched OpenAI rise and fall and then rise again in a single yeah. weekend. I thought, okay, this is the end of OpenAI if 80% yeah, yeah. of the employees will. And then Monday, it was back again. <laughs> but even OpenAI, it's very uncertain what's going to happen. Um, Absolutely. So I can relate. Uh, thank you, Tobias, again for joining us. Thank uh, you. Thank My you pleasure. for listening and for uh, watching us. If you're watching us on YouTube, Please give us a like here. Uh, if you are uh, listening to us um, on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so on, give us a, a nice review um, and uh, hope to see you again next time. Thanks again for listening and watching. Thanks to Via for joining us. Thank you. <laughs>